the phrase, museums are not neutral, is both the hashtag and the rallying words of movement. This mantra has already changed the way museums around the world are visited, curated, and protested, amplified by our guests, Latanya S. Autry and Mike Murawski, the hashtag museums are not neutral has been engaged more than a million times online by museum curators and educators and by colleagues in related fields like libraries and archives. Autry is employed at Mocha Cleveland as the Gund Curatorial Fellow. For me, I mean, I like love the expression because it's simple. It gets right to the point. I'm actually wearing one of my Museums Are Not Neutral shirts right now. And I'm really proud to wear, I do feel like it's in a way a type of armor. It's like, this is going to protect me today when I go out there and it lets people know I'm about no nonsense. I'm wearing this message right across my heart and I really mean it. Across America and overseas, Museums Are Not Neutral is changing the way we think about museums with tactics that build community and question the traditional role of the museum and museum educators. Mirowski is an independent museum consultant based in Portland. Uh, just like Latanya said, as soon as I see someone with a t-shirt or now with a you know mug and they're posting it online or I come across them at a you know at a, at a gathering or event, it just feels good because you're connected with this at least thousands of people all over the world that are really dedicated to pushing and advocating for change and transformation across museums. We speak to Autry and Mirowski about the roles of their Museums Are Not Neutral campaign, how they collaborate and build across social media, and how museums can and should transform as spaces of connection. I'm Paul Farber. This is Monument Lab. Welcome to Monument Lab, public art and history podcast. Each episode, we explore stories and critical conversations about the past, present, and future of monuments. We speak to the artists, activists, and historians on the front lines, building the next generation of public spaces through stories of social justice and equity. Here are the monumental people, places, and ideas of our time. Latanya S. Autry and Mike Murawski, welcome to Monument Lab. Hi there. Thank you. It's great to be here. Glad to have you both here. I want to start and ask you how you met and how you started working together. That's that's actually kind of hard to remember exactly about when we met. Um, I don't know exactly, but I think it was through Twitter years ago. We both just been following each other's work. A lot of people I've met through Twitter, and a lot of times I, I would not have met them in person. The first time we talked in person um, was in 2016, and I think it was related to Mass Action, um, which is an organization that stands for uh, Museums as a Site of Social Action, that was started working with a bunch of different folks in museums um, who work in the museum world. And it was through Minneapolis Institute of the Arts had a grant, and they basically were bringing together a bunch of folks who are doing social justice work. And Mike was one of those people. And he reached out to me, I think, actually before 
I think Mike, you probably you're the you probably are the ones who who maybe put my name forward to the people at Mass Action. I can't remember, but I for some reason think that that's the case. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it was we definitely. I don't know what it means to meet on Twitter, but we definitely connected because of the work we were both interested in doing back, you know, definitely by 2016. And yeah, that mass action uh, original convening was just an amazing way for a bunch of people that were doing good work um, around social justice and museums to get together. So yeah, I don't know if, if I was involved with them reaching out to you or not, but that was awesome. And then, and then meeting in Minneapolis for that first convening, which was a really small group of, of museum professionals, consultants, and, and activists to kind of get together and start that thing was was awesome. And yeah, I remember having some really good conversations uh, in Minneapolis at that, at that kind of gathering. Yeah, that was exciting because for me it was, uh, you know, a lot of times you talk, connecting with people online, but you don't meet them in person. And um, that was actually a draw for me to co- to go to that event it was because I was like, whoa, look at all these awesome people and they're all going to be in one place and I get to meet them in person. So that's actually, I know that's where we met and it's where I met a lot of other really great people who do social justice work in museums. Where did the phrase museums are not neutral come out? Was it part of those conversations? What is its origin story? So I think one of the really important things to to always be noting about, you know, a phrase or an idea or a concept like museums are not neutral. Um, it, it isn't something that Latanya and I kind of created or or started. I think it's really good to know that there's a deep deeper history and deeper thinking around this, and there have been activists, you know, I mean, just look back to the civil rights movement and some of the things that were happening in museums in the 60s and 70s and, and since really pushing back against this idea that museums were representing, you know, just colonialism and white supremacy and only certain cultural narratives and then treating that as universal, as art and culture for everyone, or even, you know, this this comes across in, in all kinds of different types of museums, history museums and and science museums and everything. And I think a lot of museum professionals and uh, leading voices in activism museums have been important. Um, two people that that I think are extremely important uh, to note are Adrian Russell and Aaliyah Brown, who started the museum's Respond to Ferguson Twitter chat, you know, Twitter conversations and hashtag. For me, that was a moment after Mike Brown's murder in Ferguson, Missouri. Um, that was right after me, you know, moving from St. Louis to Portland. Um, but just really seeing that call and that demand, that call to action for museums to respond and for museums to take action regarding these issues in, in local in our local communities that matter. That was before, you know, Latanya and I had connected around to this, around this sort of phrase. So it has a has a deeper history. And certainly a lot of individuals have been using that kind of phrase and that kind of language. Um, but I really do feel like now it's kind of pulled a lot of people together into collective action around the world through some of the campaigns and efforts that Latanya and I have been working on to, to just bring people together, form communities, and really make change happen. Yeah, definitely. Um, definitely what you're saying is so vital, right? Because in 2014, that Museums Respond to Ferguson initiative kind of kicked off, I think it was in December of that year. The history is there, and then like the, the history from farther back from 50 years ago and even before that. But um, for me, a lot of the real energy was especially starting around 2014 and forward 
with the museum's respond to Ferguson call and just feeling like myself in my own position, wondering um, my job in the museum, wondering why we weren't really responding to a lot of the things going on either. That's just been rolling actually through these various initiatives, like, you know, that we were talking about a little bit earlier about mass action from 2016. So there's been a, a real tide of activities that have been happening. And Mike and I, like, by having this expression and, you know, what we did is kind of coming together and thinking, let's put it on a t-shirt, let's make a real statement out of it. That started in 2017, but it has such a longer, you know, it has like roots all over the place, really. So um, the campaign, yes, started in 2017 and has been rolling forward, but the roots are actually very deep and tied to so many people's practice and activism. Speaking of roots, before you were working in museums and experiencing, you know, some of the dynamics that inspired museums are not neutral, what were museum spaces for you? Did you grow up spending time in museums? And and what do you remember before you were in the field itself? I did grow up going to museums from like at least probably age five or six. I lived in this little town in Michigan that's near Detroit. And my mom used to take us to Detroit Institute of Art. So I grew up going to a lot of things like plays and puppet shows and dance and all of these kind of things. And I love going to Detroit Institute of Art. I remember that a lot as a kid. I also felt like it was a really cold place. Cold in terms of like empty and not a place. You know, this is years ago, of course. I'm not saying it's how it is now or anything, but it just, it felt like a a place where people were almost an anomaly in it. It was this, it was a cold kind of environment to me and very quiet and strange, almost like it was a church or something, like you had to behave a certain kind of way in there. And I enjoyed going, but I also thought it was a strange kind of space. And also that um, at the time when I was there, a lot of the art seemed like it reflected mostly um, kind of a white European kind of culture. And so it felt very disconnected in a lot of ways from my own life. Um, with my family and stuff. So it was this place we went to that seemed very foreign. It was kind of interesting experience, but it was very foreign um, and not, a, not a you know, it didn't have a welcoming kind of feeling at the time. But I did grow up going to museums ongoing, um, later, you know, other types of institutions as well, history museums and all kinds of stuff. But I did feel often that they were places that were just not not about anybody like me, basically. I don't think I ever went to any kind of Black history museums. And my family took us to things about Black history, but it wouldn't, like at the time, I don't think there were any museums about that so much where I was at. It might be like a you know a historical site that would have a particular thing. But it wasn't like I was going and really seeing art by Black people. And it was a regular thing to see Black people working in, in these spaces and so forth. Um, that always felt very very cut off. It just didn't connect to my life in really deep ways. And, and and to lives a lot of people that I knew too. We were pretty much very working class people. So the museum world just seemed very separate. Yeah, from my perspective and, and sort of my background, I've been thinking about just, you know, what's my first memory at all of museums? So I grew up in um was born in, and raised in St. Louis, but then lived part of my uh, childhood in New Jersey, um, in Newark, and then outside of Philadelphia, and then back to St. Louis. And I, and I remember going to the St. Louis Art Museum when I was maybe in eighth grade. So that was my first 
visit. It was a school field trip visit. I really don't remember anything about it except for like a lot of portraits of fancy, rich <laughs> people from history that I couldn't, you know, didn't connect with. I think it was more of like a social visit than like a learning visit um, because I was with my friends in my class. And then honestly, I, I'd have to say um, probably in, in not visiting museums until college. And then I became an art history major pretty fast after being a history major and then was just, you know, visiting museums and kind of feeling like I was seeing them for the first time and, and sort of engaging with them through learning about the art that was presented to them. Um, but certainly never had, you know, when you're when you're studying art history and you've got the certain textbooks that you have and then you go to a museum like, you know, in St. Louis or Kansas City or Chicago where you have some of these collections that are, you know, quote unquote encyclopedic um, and you see examples of things you see in your textbooks, it all kind of then connects into that grand narrative of art history that that's been constructed. Um, and I definitely didn't, you know, question that throughout that, you know, time period until until going into to grad school and, and, you know, thinking more about, you know, some of these things. But um yeah, but before I, before I got a job in museums, I hadn't been <laughs> thinking about them a great deal and then found myself in museum education, which I never even knew was a career. You know, we never talked about <laughs> that you could, you know, teach in museums uh, throughout all of my college and, and schooling. Um, so I was just kind of thrown into it, which was, you know, it's awesome, but it was certainly not something I ever thought I would do. Yeah, it's so interesting because museums to me seem like they often feel like mysteries to people like what they're about, what kind of jobs are in them and so on. Um, like I said, I grew up going regularly and like those early experiences as a kid, but then also with school groups and always being like, it was almost like we were like we were being trained that this is like, you know, high culture. And it, so it just felt very distinct, distinct and like a very distinctive kind of experience where in one way I feel very, I, I feel weird using the word comfortable, but I did feel comfortable going, but also not comfortable at the same time because the stuff in them and it felt like I was being always a visitor and I was being trained like to fall in line or to respect and to honor these certain great things, which I felt like most of the time were pretty much about white culture. And it was um, going along with a lot of my training that I was getting in school but it was things at the same time that I was like with my family being told like, hey, you know, that's great. You're learning that. But always know that that is actually kind of a certain that's a certain lens that the world is giving you. And that's actually not the only type of culture in the world. So I was always kind of operating in an oppositional kind of stance, I would say. And especially knowing that um, people like me aren't represented in these kind of places. Our narratives aren't there. It doesn't seem like we're necessarily welcome there. And actually going to school later, I didn't go to school originally for art history or anything. It happened after multiple attempts, <laughs> various measures. But later kind of deciding, you know, being in art history and having assignments. So I was always going to the museum and looking at different things. And still, I wasn't actually really loving it. I like a lot of, I would like certain things and like certain artwork, but I wouldn't necessarily be liking that that thing, that institutional structure, that thing of a museum. Although I was very, in some ways, very fluent with it because I've been grown up with it regularly, but always at the same time being an outsider in it all along. So it's an interesting thing. So for me in graduate school, I got in, I started doing museum studies. I started graduate school with the idea that I wanted to change museums. It's been something in me from the beginning that I felt there's something wrong in them and I want to change it. I want to break that structure. 
Where did you first encounter the work of Black artists and, and artists of color? And if it wasn't in museums, where did you find that kind of representation? I think for me, it was in our home. Uh, my mom collected, and I wouldn't say, you know, it's, like I said, we're a working class family. Uh, my father at the time worked in factory and then later was um, a soldier. He was a sergeant in the army. So we don't have money <laughs> and we don't come from families of wealth. Other people who have money or anything. We don't come from that kind of background. But um, I believe art is actually, I believe art is everything and it's everywhere in many ways. My mom collected a lot of African um, art in the seventies and stuff. And sometimes she was probably buying these sculptures on the street, you know, like in Detroit, she worked at a telephone company. She would be buying black art on the streets and stuff. And it was really cool because it was a time that, you know, the black power movement was still like a feeling that was, that was pretty strong. And um, so many African-American folks were really kind of rediscovering and becoming really proud of their roots and things like that. So I would say that's where I probably experienced um, black art from. It was coming from things she brought in the home, books and stuff that she was buying, probably some TV shows we were watching. It definitely didn't come from my school. Definitely not my school. My schools are very white oriented all the time. It was, I was learning about black history and black culture at home. I think for me, just reflecting back on kind of when, so, so growing up in a, you know, in a family in St. Louis, I grew up in the suburbs of St. Louis, super segregated city. And my parents were part of white flight. You know, they were part of, of, you know, fleeing, you know, inner city St. Louis where they had grown up. Um, so growing up in an environment, you know, where, where, you know, racism had so much to play with what we were thinking about and, and what we were exposed to. Um, but I do remember um, in high school, it wasn't through any art classes that I had, but it was through uh, some advanced literature classes where we were reading um, Harlem Renaissance authors and poetry. And then the teacher sort of, um, who was a kind of counterculture teacher, um, really wanted to make sure that we engaged with jazz and visual arts. And and these were things that I don't think I probably, you know, reconnected with again until maybe little in undergraduate art history classes where you get to the section on, you know, quote unquote, black art or African-American art history. And they, they cram it into like a two page pullout section or something like that. Because, you know, again, we got to, it's not part of the sort of you know, main narrative, except for a very few number of artists. Um, so don't remember engaging with it too much until working for museums and and then being able to really understand how much uh, was either in storage or was not on view or not accessible, you know, not part of collections in, in museums that I was working for and museums that I was visiting. But yeah, so, so definitely not a lot of exposure growing up to Black artists and culture. I want to get back to your work together, but I, I do want to kind of ask a follow-up, which from your perspective, having worked in museums and also with the life experiences that you shared, what is the impact on museums, that lack in um, spotlighting perspectives that are not just white and European and male? Well, it's complicated. I mean, I would say in general, because I've been, I've worked at a few different, like I would say a few, I've worked at like eight different museums um, now. So it's quite a bit of experience and some for sh- very short amounts of time, like a few months, you know, as a student in the summer and some for longer for years. And so I've gotten to see a real range in, in different size institutions and, you know, ones with lots of money and ones with not such um, big endowments or 
funds, fundraising opportunities. And what I would say, and all of them actually have had the same issue of hardly any people who aren't white are shaping any of the decisions in the institutions, like at eight different museums I've been at. That's always been the case. It's sad, but true. One place did have a collection of African-American art, um, a university museum at University of Delaware, where I'm working on my PhD. So that's really exceptional and great in itself. And now it's interesting to see, like in the last, I would say the last few years, probably since about 2016 or so, there have been more of these, I call, I just call them white museums. I mean, let's be honest, that's what they are. Um, if, if it's the case that most of like everybody who's shaping the content is is a white person and the institution is centered around um, European culture for the most part, I just call them white museums. The other institutions they call black museums and things like that, you know. Uh, and these other ones are supposedly mainstream, but in reality, whatever mainstream is, it's it's just a way to avoid calling it for what it is. So um, these white institutions, what it is, is just a replication of whiteness. And in the last few years, there's been this people patting themselves on the back that they've started to buy um, art of more black artists, that they finally started recognizing, hey, there's all of these other folks that exist. And of course, there's a lot of other artists too, other people. Um, and, you know, it's interesting and pathetic in a way to see so many people getting credit and people lauding them when in reality, it's like, you've been actually missing out. Like certain institutions have been trying to claim that they are encyclopedic or um, that they are these bastions of modernism and so forth. And yet been completely disavowing various groups of people. So of course it was never all that in the first place. And so while I think it's great that, Certain artists are getting more, having more people, you know, have opportunities to see their work. It's actually, the institutions really haven't changed too much. So they've been, you know, bringing in different people, maybe some different artists, and it's still kind of a a narrow range. But the staffing hasn't changed really. By doing this kind of exclusionary, kind of racist crap, it means that the way these things fold out in terms of the narratives, the knowledge is still pretty segmented. It's still pretty um, segregated. And a lot of really more interesting experiences don't happen, aren't happening, because there's still a lot of racial exclusion in the institutions. So there's some good stuff. And obviously there's some places that have started. It's, It's sad. We still have like, ooh, we got the first black curator at X institution, you know, really big, wealthy institutions. And it's like in 2019, 2020, that they're finally getting one black person as a curator. Those people, of course, are extremely qualified and it's really wonderful, but it's also just lets you know a lot about these institutions. And it's really sad that almost always it's presented in um, a lot of these, quote, mainstream publications as wow, isn't this great that this institution is having um, a curator of color? And it's like, why why isn't the attention on, look at this institution that for how many years it's been in existence is finally getting this one amazing person when all along they haven't been, you know, they haven't been incorporating various perspectives and, and things like that. So I feel a lot of times it's a comp, it's a compilation of issues that's happening the media in terms of the attention the institutions get often are very have a very single lens where they're not looking at these issues from actually like all of the aspects to it. 
and there's so much celebration about the having the first black person to do X, Y, Z, when in reality, that's actually something to be embarrassed about. That was great. And I, I, I think for me, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to this whole idea of museums are not neutral. Um, a lot of what Latanya talked about in terms of, you know, white museums being white museums and, and naming that um, just relates to how much that sort of perspective of, you know, white supremacy, oppression, racism, colonialism, um, sexism, and ableism has just been normalized to be elevated as, you know, this is just what good art is. This is, you know, high quality. This is professionalism. Um, and these things are neutral and objective. And I think then when museums, you know, do a side project and they and they start doing, you know, inclusion or equity work or they start hiring, you know, diversity fellows, which they need extra funding for, you know, the museums that might have a, a $4 billion endowment and an operating budget of over $100 million, they need a $50,000 grant so they can hire a person of color to be a curatorial assistant or an educator. I mean, th- these things are ridiculous. Um, and, and they're examples of this type you know, of work happening all across these institutions. And so I think like at the core of, of, you know, some of this activism work is to just highlight that and name that, which has been so provocative for so many institutions, right? I mean, it's just, it still sounds so ridiculous to say that there are so many museums, so many of these white institutions that really do rely on this uh, as Angela Davis refers to it, the tyranny of the universal, this idea that this neutral, apolitical, you know, quote unquote, fair and balanced perspective is kind of the truth and the main narrative, the mainstream narrative. Um, and all these other things on the outside are kind of radical attempts to, you know, revise history or changes to it. Um, and I think so much of the the work that we've been trying to do is just getting especially museum professionals at whatever level they are and, and people writing about arts and culture to, to recognize, you know, our roles in questioning that, uh, interrupting that and trying to replace that. Um, and, and that's been, you know, that's been the work, I think, a lot of the work. When you started sharing the phrase, museums are not neutral, how did that impact your work? And what did you sense from other people sharing that in person or online? For me, I mean, I like love the expression because it's simple. It gets right to the point. I'm actually wearing one of my museums are not neutral shirts right now. And I'm really proud to wear. I do feel like it's in a way a type of armor. It's like, this is going to protect me today when I go out there and it lets people know I'm about no nonsense. I'm wearing this message right across my heart and I really mean it. And it's been great to be um, sometimes people ask questions about what does it mean, and then I'm in conversation with them, and it sometimes it gets really deep, actually. Yeah, what's been really exciting to me is to see through the hashtag, museums are not neutral, people all across the world sharing and having this conversation and really like building energy and mobilizing. People are supporting each other through this, um, through the hashtag. So it's created a, a conversation point that lets people get in contact. I've often felt alone. Um, a lot of times where I've been working, different things that I would be pushing against, it seemed like other people are afraid to speak. You know, maybe they believe the same thing, but they're not, they're afraid to speak up. And 
the having the hashtag, it's like a way of coming together with other people. And we've figured I, I'm hearing about something happening to someone wherever, you know, um, in England. And I'm like, whoa, that's awesome. And then we start talking and we're in dialogue. People start building collaborations. And a lot of times that's happening even just through the hashtag. So to me, it's been really exciting. And it's a great way to build a network, to build a coalition. I would agree so much with that sort of uh, idea of this, of these words, of this phrase, like when, when this started to, to be on t-shirts and started to like live in the world. Um, yeah, I mean, I think prior to that, it did feel a little alone to be pushing back and asking questions and, you know, trying to make change and then, and then getting so much resistance. Um, and then you felt like, you know, well, if I'm the only one in my institution or if I'm the only one in my community or when I go to a conference, am I the only one? Like, I just don't know. And because a lot of the larger, you know, professional associations, because a lot of the big institutions just haven't been supportive of these types of conversations, it was, yeah, it was hard to bring a community together. And I think, you know, as soon as, uh, just like Latanya said, as soon as I see someone with a t-shirt or now with a, you know, mug and they're posting it online or I, come across them at a, you know, at a, at a gathering or event. It just feels good because you're connected with this, at least thousands of people all over the world that are really dedicated to pushing and advocating for change and transformation across museums. Um, and then the hashtag on, you know, especially Twitter, which is the platform that I primarily use around this work. Um, there are literally millions of people who have engaged with the with the museums are not neutral hashtag. I mean, that is a that is an expansive community of support and advocacy and action um, that is so much more powerful than one person trying to do work. I think it's really incredible to see people, in some cases, just asking questions or sharing something happening to a local history museum in Ireland or, you know, in South Africa or in Australia, and they're sharing it. And then people all over the world are, are connecting and saying like, yeah, you know, you should push back against that or, you know, and then it just becomes this growing, you know, community and collective support uh, network, which is really powerful. So um, I think that the, those words have just meant so much in terms of recognizing the power that exists among so many museum professionals and, and people in our communities around the world. When you began, did the two of you sit down and you know make a plan and say, this is how we're going to deploy this phrase? Was it more organic? What tools did you think you needed and what tools did you have or not have uh, to begin the movement? <laughs> That's funny. Um, <laughs> it's like a good question in a way that I'm like, I was like shaking my head just when you were talking, Paul. Um, no, we didn't. We didn't actually sit down and talk about it. Not deeply, I would say. I mean, there was a moment I saw Mike wrote an expression on Twitter and he said something museums are not neutral. And I was like, oh, that should be on a T-shirt. And we did have a conversation a bit about it, but it's it's evolved. And I, you know, neither of us had the idea that it would go on and on. Like originally, I think we both thought this would just be for a couple of months or something. You know, I was like, Oh, it'd be a great shirt. I'd buy it. You know, I like, I'd like to have it. (laughs) It it ended up being a bigger thing. And, um, I didn't realize how important it would be. And I'm really like proud uh, of it, but it's really because other people took it, took it on. And so we've been growing with it. It's been, it's been um, something that's grown and it's, you know, it, I think that we both of us, that it's also flexible and we, while we are, you know, 
producing it in some way and helping it along and shaping it. We also don't control it for real. And it it's a lot of things. It's what people want it to be. So a lot of its power is that it is really lateral and people have been, um, they find resonance in it. And sometimes people who are in libraries or archives are like, Hey, can we do that? We should have an archives are not neutral or libraries are not neutral. And I'm like, yes, libraries are not neutral and archives are not neutral. But we don't need to be the ones to, to say that and produce that. You should, you know, build that kind of energy um, in your field. And people have done it. And so that's what also what's really cool is, is while we're talking about museums are not neutral, is that this is something that actually has, um, you know, touched on other areas too, other sectors. And so it's really a lovely thing to watch and be a part of. Yeah, I had to laugh too when we talked when when you asked about whether we were sort of you know strategically planning this out in the beginning because yeah it was just sort of uh, <laughs> I loved the back and forth of that would be a great T-shirt and I just was like seriously it would be what if I made it <laughs> and we just found that neither of us ever wanted to be in the business of like screen printing T-shirts in our basement so we found you know Bonfire which has been able to manage all of the elements of this entire campaign. But the other thing that I think is really important to mention too is from the beginning, we wanted to make sure that, so let's say you are someone and you're kind of, you just don't know what you can do. Like, you know, people always ask like, what can I do? How can I get involved? I don't feel like in my own community, maybe I don't feel safe getting involved in social justice activism. And from the beginning, simply just getting involved with this campaign has meant you're doing something. All of the profits from, you know, the, all the t-shirt sales and other things that are, you know, now has have those words on it are going to social justice charities and causes and, and supporting communities. We started with the Southern Poverty Law Center, and now uh, the organization um, is the, uh, for, for quite a while now, has been the Community Foundation of Greater Flint. So one of these, you know, nonprofits that's, you know, raising money to help the wealth health and well-being of children in Flint, Michigan, way after, you know, this is, you know, left the headlines um, and that there's still just so much uh, long-term health and development needs uh, in that community. So, so people are being part of this campaign are doing something. And that was something that was strategic for both Latanya and I is just making sure that, that as this thing has grown to understanding that it can make a difference in this world um, and making sure that that's still a really core part of, of everything that we're doing. Where has the hashtag shown up that's surprised you or or who has uttered it or shared it that's taken you aback? Oh, yeah. Um, well, a couple, a couple of things. Um, one, sometimes I just like, I don't, you know, I don't actually check the Twitter feed all the time with the hashtag museums are not neutral, but sometimes I'll go on there and check it and it'd be people like talking in Argentina or something in Japan. And I'm like, Whoa, this is, this is great. In France, the hashtag came up with that, like the international group that was meeting to talk about the definition of museums. ICOM. Yeah. The international council of museums. Yeah. Like the hashtag came up in that conversation. And so it's, it's popped up in different places. And then there's been some Amazing people like oh, what's her name, Janetta, Janetta Besh Cole. She, I think she's no longer, but she was the director of the Smithsonian African Art Museum. She's, you know, one of these amazing, powerful people who's brilliant. Anyway, at some point, someone sent me a note, and I don't remember who it is, but they said that there's a picture of her wearing one of the the hoodies, uh, the sweatshirt hoodies of museums are not neutral, 
And I was like, oh my God, can you get me a copy? And I don't think I ever got it, unfortunately. But that was really cool to hear. So there's, you know, the campaign has just gone all over the world and all kinds of people engage with it. I love it that sometimes it's undergraduate students. Sometimes it's like, you know, former directors of the Smithsonian. It's just really all over. One of my favorite, um, I don't know if it's surprising, but one of my favorite uh, people who's wearing the Museums Are Not Neutral t-shirts all the time um, is a community organizer and activist here in Portland, Oregon, Teresa Rayford. And and she's worn these t-shirts. She's a mayoral candidate right now. Um, and she's worn these t-shirts at, you know, campaign events and, and all kinds of different protest events and activist events that she's been working on here in the community and has been so, you know, such a, an incredible supporter of this movement. And, um, and I, I, I think I've loved when I've seen people who don't, you know, who aren't part of the sort of museum field and museum community wear the t-shirt or use the hashtag or be a part of this. Cause that, that to me, that like really resonates. That means this message is sort of getting out into a broader, you know, group of people. And I think that's where so much of this accountability lies. Like it's one thing for museum professionals to all, you know, get together and, you know, call for change and demand change in institutions. But there's so much power in community accountability and the work that, you know, individuals like, um, like Teresa and others can do to really push for change. Um, so that's been really awesome to see things like that pop up. And I think um, I remember, I think on NBC news, someone wearing one of the t-shirts was at a museum protest in New York. And there was a photograph from like Associated Press. And that was one of those like moments where I was like, whoa, <laughs> we're, on, we're on the national news kind of sort of. <laughs> That's amazing. You know, I think it's been such a profound gesture. It's been so generative to just hold up a mirror to art, to history, to to museums of, of various kinds, and to use the word neutral. For both of you, what are the dangers and the pitfalls of trying to find neutrality in a place like a museum? I guess for me, um, the neutral thing has never been something I actually have ever really valued or like want it to be a part of. And so I always found it to be bizarre that people would have that expression and, and it seemed like they would say it as if it was something good. And I was like, it's, well, it just obviously isn't neutral, right? None of this is neutral. And, it, and I just, I've always felt like I didn't need to have a PhD to understand that nothing about a museum is neutral. I already knew that early on as a kid, I knew that none of this was neutral. And it always has been bizarre to me to see people with like, who have college degrees um, and been in the field for a long time saying that. And I was like, that neutral claim to me has always been a rhetorical stance. It's, it's a way to cover up something. It's a position to take, and which is obviously in itself not neutral. And so to me, I've always just felt like the neutral thing, when I would encounter it with people, I just realized that that was them, you know, wanting to shut something down, a way to try to um, quiet any kind of, discussion about something and basically a, a way to say that this is a status quo. This is um, what people who are in certain positions of power, often economic kind of power, um, have decided. And so we're calling it neutral. I felt like I knew that all along. And I was always stunned by whenever I have um, people who are colleagues in the museum world, it seemed like mostly, because I don't think I've met too many people who 
who would not be in the museum world who would be saying that the museum was neutral. It was always like the people on the inside or um, going going through like graduate school or something, certain kind of training in art history who would be presenting this stuff and actually using words like neutral and objective in ways that um, make it seem like those things are fine and those are what we should be working towards. That's something you would want to be. The reality of like people that I would be talking to normally did not like in my own family and stuff, wouldn't be thinking that a museum is some neutral, objective place. We always knew that that was a lie. I agree with, you know, all of that. I think, I think this idea of neutrality, so much time, energy, resources goes into propping that up. I mean, that's just part of the system of, of sort of white supremacy and patriarchy is to support this lie um, exactly as Latanya said and I think um, so there's so much harm happening because of that there's so much it's just dangerous for so many institutions to be supporting this this false construction this idea um, which really is just supporting wealth and ableism and racism and sexism and all these different perspectives that um, get normalized by just being neutral and for museums you know i think one of the reasons why someone uh, the other day had said you know that a lot of this activism is you know it's such a negative approach to museums that someone had said you know you must not like museums very much because you're always so critical of them and i turned around and said that's not the case. Like I know museums, I know the potential they have and they're not living up to it. I know the changes that need to happen. Most museums start as colonial institutions, but I believe if they can shed that and do some serious, serious transformations internally and externally, that there is a potential for a very different type of institution. So I think it's worth asking the questions, bringing up these things um, and just totally exposing and erasing and replacing this idea of neutrality and these ideas of white supremacy that, you know, are systemic and and are, you know, again, part of how these institutions in many cases were formed. And it's really, really hard to make those changes. Uh, But, you know, more and more people are really committing to having these conversations and asking these questions. Um, And uh, yeah, I mean, one of the biggest fears that I have right now is that this pandemic is causing a lot of pressures on museums in terms of resources and staff and their staff cuts, that it's going to really deprioritize a lot of these conversations because it was hard to get anyone to have these conversations, to challenge these ideas. um, And it wasn't easy. And now I think those are going to be, you know, the first things, and we've seen it already. Those are some of the first things to go in some institutions, you know, well, well, let's just pause all that stuff. Let's go back to normal. Let's go back to the way things were. And maybe when we restabilize, we can start addressing these kind of, you know, fringe issues again, these sort of, you know, cute ideas of inclusion. And, and I just, it just pains me to see what I think might be a little bit more of a return to neutrality as museums try to return to normal throughout this crisis. Which is, of course, that return is, um, you know, a return to violence, basically, um, you know, using the idea of neutrality or something and saying, well, we have to return the whole idea of the normal. Like to me, I'm like, I'm not actually interested in the normal. I mean, of course I don't want there to be a pandemic that we have right now, but I'm not interested in returning to the same kind of systems. The systems are violent that we have. And so the fact that people think, well, 
they like just what has already happened, right? That this is a fringe activity, that this is this diversity activities, these inclusion activities, these equity things are things on the side, which in reality, they should have always been at the fundamental core of the whole institutional project in the first place. And then we would see things rolling out differently if equity was always centered in a regular part of the institution for museums. We would see things rolling out very differently. So there's, of course, what this virus has done is shut down things in a certain way. But the virus isn't the thing that's causing the layoffs. It's how management is working, um, how many places where the management is working through and against, actually, because they never did really embrace these ideas of diversity, the real practices of um, equity. They never really embodied that. And so that's always been on the side. And so right now, the attitude at many institutions has been to kind of hack away at areas like, you know, um, education departments and um, a lot of times they, education departments at various institutions have a lot of part-time um, artists and other folks that are working in there. And that's usually the only areas that really have any, have any diversity in them typically besides for the facilities and, um, security staff. And so it is really, really devastating and atrocious to see so many colleagues, um, of color being just kind of thrown out of the field. So what's happening isn't because of the virus. What's happening is because the institutions are racist. What I, what we're seeing in the field and museums right now um, at this time with the pandemic is so many um, people being laid off and losing their jobs. And, you know, in many ways, people are saying it's because of the, you know, this COVID-19 virus and because it shut things down and there will be less money um, coming into institutions, but we uh, some of these places, not not everywhere, but some of these places have huge endowments and are still holding on to certain kind of um, old-fashioned thinking about like protecting the endowment, you know, no matter what, and and will cut staff first. And what's really what this is about the idea of that we will one day return to normal is that normal in itself is violence, and we shouldn't be trying to return to normal. If anything, it would. This is actually a great time to really be pushing towards what diversity, inclusion, and equity really are supposed to be about at the institutions. If the places had embodied those principles that many of them have been at least saying them as words um, and putting them in statements and slapping them on on brochures and stuff, but if they really were embodying that, we would see something very different happening. And so to see these institutions hacking away at education departments, um, that is just atrocious. It's really violent. It's devastating to see. It's not surprising, sadly. It's not surprising, but it is violence in itself. And that's because they never embody those principles of equity, diversity, inclusion in the first place. And it's not the fault of the virus. A lot of times management at various institutions are writing these statements about, you know, it's virus, it's the virus and what it's done is shutting down things and the lack of funding and so forth. It's not about that thought, really. It's about how things are managed. It's really the poor management choices that are happening. It's the racism of our institutions that's created this condition that's happening right now with museums. That's that's what I think on that. You're pointing out these connections between um, claims of neutrality and the like this goal of quote unquote getting back to normal as acts of violence, you know, and trying to disrupt that. In this moment, when you look around, your colleagues, especially those engaged in the museums are not neutral movement, 
what are you seeing as ways that um, museum educators, people in engagement, people uh, working in curatorial departments are pushing back against that idea of a of return to normal as the right mindset and instead organizing or envisioning other kind of work that matches the spirit of your movement? I think some of the things that I'm at least noticing across the field is, um, well, I think one big thing is transparency, especially around a lot of the things that are happening with museum workers and um, sort of some of the, you know, ways the labor movement can connect and unions can connect in with this. So salary transparency, layoff transparency, um, the ideas of of having these Google documents that are crowdsourced and getting as much information out there as possible um, is a really important form of activism. That that information is extremely important. Um, so this transparency, I think, is is an important part of it. Another thing that I'm seeing uh, that I think is really important in how we could potentially reimagine going forward and and how institutions or how individuals move forward are ways that we can focus and center healing and community care and taking care of each other in these moments, like institutions that are really thinking about people first, being very human-centered throughout this. Um, I've spoken to a few directors at smaller institutions, and they're struggling way more than the big institutions are. They don't have endowments. They don't have big donors as much as these large institutions do. But they are the ones, in so many cases, who are bringing their teams together and saying, look, we care about each other, and that's what matters most. And we know that's what our community cares about, because we are our community. We're reflective of our community. there, There are institutions out there, you know, that are thinking about, that first. Um, and I think if we can center and really build practices around healing and accountability and care, uh, especially this idea of community care and collective care, um, I really think that's when we can start changing, you know, what institutions look like. We can start to reimagine in a, an extremely positive way how we can start to change some of these really harmful and violent practices um, and, and start to make a difference. So, so I see that happening um, where institutions are really trying to, you know, make those connections. Um, but I do think it's, it's in a lot of institutions that are having trouble getting support. They're not getting the big payroll loans from the federal government. They're not getting big grants from the NEH because there's so many barriers in place for smaller institutions, especially those that are POC-led to get those resources. It's just not happening. Um, the big institutions are really, you know, sucking up a lot of those resources, even though they already have huge endowments. So it's, it's been a real struggle, but there are people out there that, you know, care so much and they're going to push forward through this. I love how you're talking about the care kind of focus. And I've seen that definitely with smaller institutions too, more, probably more so. I like hearing about like mass action as this, like we mentioned earlier, is this, um, you know, group of people from different places. Some are museum educators. They're really all, all across the board, consultants, um, all kinds of areas. Um, and it's interesting that they came up with, an, and important that they came up with this mass action equity statement, basically calling on institutions and highlighting how, what equity means at this time and encouraging people to think about, instead of just cutting off departments or um, taking away like all part-time educators, d- doing something like making an equitable 
pay reduction based on salaries. And it's a really important statement. I think that's a really great type of um, organizing that came about and is out there and seeing people sharing that is really good. And of course, if people are actualizing that, um, that's even better. And seeing um, groups like on social media, like Art and Museum Transparency, they put out really wonderful information that they've been sharing. It's basically organizing that's really happening. You know, it's one thing to think of this as just information and who knows what people are doing with it. We, we see people actually organizing, start to build things. There was a discussion yesterday with the um, organization Museums and Race um, put together a Twitter. Um, they put together a talk on Twitter and people from, you know, all over kind of were jumped in and it basically came about that. I think it was Hannah Heller who suggested there be a organization that focuses on museum workers and not just because the focus is often on institutions. Um, and when people ask me, where is the more, the real exciting kind of uh, work happening, I would say it's important to really look at individuals versus thinking about things that come out under like an institutional directive. I often don't think that's where the important, deepest, most authentic work is happening. It's coming from individuals who may work at various institutions who are really passionate people, but it's them coming together and making the things happen. So through this conversation that was happening, it was actually something on like what thinking about what does radical mean in relationship to the museum. A lot of energy and excitement got generated through that. And, you know, who knows, maybe we were going to do something. We, we were really building and we're starting to talk about it. And that's only like two days old. So that's hot on the presses. But, um, you know, I think uh, various people have had these thoughts over years that there should be some kind of more umbrella organizations. Of course, there's AAM that focuses on museums, but it still kind of has more of an institutional um, focus. We are talking about something that isn't exactly maybe a workers union, although I kind of like that idea. We're interested in some kind of body that would it's still early to say. And also just these various forms of mutual aid organizing that tie to this thing that, Mike, what you're talking about of collective care, it's been, um, I guess, in some ways, it's, you know, it's devastating to see the field being chopped away as it is right now. And we know there's probably another wave coming. But at the same time, it's like this real love that's happening of people caring for one another and developing fundraisers and stuff to help out colleagues who need to be able to pay their rent. They need to, um, you know, whatever, get groceries, pick up prescriptions, things like that. So there is energy that we're seeing across all over Philadelphia. I saw one, I think I saw one in LA, museum workers developing, fundraising. And these, you know, might feel like short-term things, but I think there is, um, there's a range of stuff going on. There's short-term and there's longer-term kind of organizing that's happening. And all of it is, it's really powerful and exciting. And a lot of that work, as I said, isn't coming from institutions, it's coming from individuals who are creating collectives because they they want to and need to, but it's not a museum telling them or organizing it. It's individuals doing that and creating their own collectives. To close out, you know, as you point out, we're in a moment where um, we need a lot of care, a lot of healing, a lot of urgent action. Um, and museums are are part of the question of what public space is and will be. If you have a wish or an intention for museums in this moment, what is it? What what do you envision is important 
um, sustaining um, for museums today? Ooh, I can try to uh, respond to that first. I think just like we were talking about how neutrality, you know, things like neutrality, colonialism, and violence have been really institutionalized as part of museums. Uh, I feel like the opposite. These things of these ideas of healing and care um, and humanness can also be institutionalized to respond to that. That we can build institutions and structures that really start to center equity, community, um, and care and really start to replace some of these old things. Um, so like at the core of all of this, I feel like really is this recentering and reimagining project to really bring institutions all across this country and the world to become more human centered and connect more with these human values of relationship building and community. And even, you know, I use the word love more now than I have before. I think people need to look more into what that really means in the work that we're doing and what that could really mean as institutions connect with communities um, instead of hiding behind their walls um, at a moment like this. So I think there is so much potential and possibility and opportunity um, there just needs to be this moment of risk taking to lean towards these ideas of care and healing and not necessarily just towards the bottom line and you know endowments yeah definitely i was gonna say too um what i would love to see is more of that focus on caring about humans caring about um beings caring about inter and realizing that we are all interdependent um, I think about a lot of times the idea of the word curator, um, you know, it comes from the Latin and it means to, you know, care. And I think many curators think of their job very much as uh, caring for objects and, you know, maybe some, and it's not all of them, but some think of it as caring for artists if they work maybe in a more contemporary, like with contemporary art or something. And yet, there is this kind of not an idea of caring for like just people, right. In general that we, I, I like to think of my work as a curator, um, trying to center care as a, a praxis, like a form of, you know, this is my, my practice and this is how I'm hopefully making the world better through my work and thinking of curating is a caring for our communities. I would love to see museums really embody that and like mean it. That would be wonderful if museums really became these spaces that cared about community, that cared about people as much as, at least as much as they care about maybe the objects in their collection, if they have collections. Um, that would be really wonderful to see more of a turn towards caring about, caring about people. And that would include their staff and that would include, of course, the communities that surround them as well as like everyone else. Some museums get a lot of tourist traffic and don't care about the people who are right in their own backyard. I would love to see a real caring for like all people. LaTanya S. Autry and Mike Murawski, thank you so much for this conversation and for all your work. Oh, thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for this invitation. It was lovely to talk with all of you. And hey, thank you, Mike. It was good talking with you too. Yeah, this was so great. I really appreciate it uh, to have this time to talk through these ideas. You can learn more about Museums Are Not Neutral at their website, museumsarenotneutral.com. And you can support them by buying t-shirts, mugs, and gear, and all proceeds go to the Museum Workers Relief Fund. Monument Lab is produced by Monument Lab Studio. 
Justin Yeller and Paul Farber. Extra assistance comes from studio manager Yannick Trapman O'Brien, designer William Hodgson, and communications director Patricia Kim. All music you hear on the Monument Lab podcast is by Mokita. The Monument Lab podcast is supported by the Cerdna Foundation. To find out more about Monument Lab, visit us at monumentlab.com or find us online at monument underscore lab. You can find Monument Lab anywhere you get podcasts. Apple, Spotify, Google Play. You can also read a full transcript of each episode on our website. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave a rating. Your feedback really helps.